Hello, hello, and welcome. Did you know that the technical term for a male ballet dancer is a ballerino? You got it. This episode, I am so thrilled to bring on my first dancer. And ballerino? He is more of a ballerine, yes. Taylor Stanger is one of my favorite people. He is so optimistic in his view on life, knowing humans are first and foremost beautiful. And he wants them to be able to find that within themselves. He does like to chat, which makes this episode a little long. But I hope you can stick through it, because he is a wealth of knowledge. Again, this podcast has taken me a while to launch, so the shows that we've referred to in American or Paris is over. But I was able to see it, and it was stunning. I have never seen musical theater driven by the style of ballet, and boy, was he good at it. This episode was recorded in Phoenix, Arizona, and some time ago, and published now due to me learning how to edit and publish a podcast, so some info might be a little old, but I hope you can still use all of the information to look up their work, and your interest is piqued. I hope you are having a grand day, and please enjoy this week's episode I've titled Grace and Humility. Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Pique My Interest, a podcast dedicated to creativity. My name is Scoob Decker, and I am an artist. This podcast was created to learn more about different styles of art and, more importantly, meet some incredible people and explore their craft and how they create. I'm very excited because I am currently in Phoenix, Arizona, just for a little visit, and I'm sitting here with... Taylor Stanger. Hello, Taylor Stanger. Can you please tell us, what is your craft? I am a performer, currently a musical theater performer, uh, doing American in Paris with the Phoenix Theater Company here in Arizona, and I got my start as a performer uh, through the world of ballet. Ballet, okay. That's your specialty within theater. What makes your work different? How, how is ballet, as a background in theater, different than other actors getting their start in musical theater? I think coming to musical theater this way was a little bit more unique. I know a lot of other people have had the same or a similar path. However, I learned to dance just specific ballet technique from a really, really young age. I went to ballet school, whereas a lot of the people that I've worked with on past shows or tours picked up dance technique and dance styles on the fly from productions they were in, whether that was like, you know, starting in community and working up to tours and professional houses which is really impressive. Um, I don't know that that's something that I could have done, but I, I started when I was six years old uh, at ballet school and trained exclusively in ballet until I was about 14 and then branched off into different styles. Um, and I always liked musical theater. I knew that that was something that like I enjoyed watching, but I had never really thought of it as a career path. And I don't know why, because, I mean, obviously those people were professionally engaged in their craft that way, but I was so dead set on being a professional ballet dancer and went down that avenue for a while. And then I had a ballet master who was like, listen, if you want to continue this way, you're, I mean, you're talented enough to continue to get work in ballet, but you have the personality of a Broadway kid. And I, at the time, I think I was kind of offended Only because in my mind, I was like, oh my goodness, musical theater is such a lesser art form. And that's 
very obviously not true, <laughs> but I, I'm glad that I was able to kind of stumble into the world of musical theater because it's been a place where I think I'm happier and it just utilizes my full skill set instead of just one. Mm-hmm. So it's it's become more of a home. Mm-hmm. Transitioning to the dark side of musical theater. Yes. But it's very interesting coming from a ballet background. It's very different than most other yep. uh, performers. Speaking of your background, what is your background? Where are you from? What's your education? So I am from Boise, Idaho, originally, and that's where I'm based as well, which is also kind of unusual. Unusual, hello. Mm-hmm. For uh, Rocky Mountain. Yep, for musical theater performers, just because, you know, everybody's either based in Los Angeles or New York, and I was for a period, but now I'm back in Boise, and with the advent of mobile auditioning, that makes that possible. Um, But I am from Boise. I grew up dancing there through high school, and then I went to Brigham Young University, where I got degrees in ballet performance as well as musical theater, which was a lot, Um, but I'm really, really grateful for the training. Um, so yeah, that's, I think those, that's my formal education, but then, you know, every show thereafter has been its own education, Mm -hmm. whether that's in different styles or Mm -hmm. character types. So I think you're always still learning, but my formal education was ballet school and studio work up until university. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you for piquing my interest about you. Now let's learn about your craft. What piqued your interest about musical theater or ballet? To start with ballet, I always, I can't remember a time that I didn't want to be a ballet dancer. I mean, my parents said, you know, at three years old, I expressed like, I want to be a dancer. I want to be a ballet dancer. And they were supportive of that, but they were like, I mean, he's young. I don't know that he knows what he wants to do. So they put me in gymnastics. And at like five, I knew that I was doing gymnastics to like limber myself up and train (laughs) so that I was ready when it was time to go to ballet school. So... I've always wanted to do that. There's just, I was fascinated by the grace, I think. I've always loved graceful, beautiful things. And I think that gets assigned to a gender a lot of times. Like, oh, women are graceful, men are powerful. And I think there is a lot of power in graceful men. Um, I remember I had a, a ballet master who once said he was like, a man should be able to kill with precision and dance with grace. Like it was, he was like, they need to have both of like the, both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and it was just that, that, that hard grounded masculine energy or whatever, but also have that very, very delicate, beautiful, graceful side, which I, I loved. So being able to incorporate that and just admire that as a child uh, is what I think drew me to ballet. And I don't necessarily come from an arts family. Like, I grew up in a faith system where, like, music and dance and everything was very, um, it was just popular. It was what we did. We sang, we danced. Uh, We consumed a lot of, you know, golden age musical theater media. So I was always around musical theater, but I was always drawn to the dance. And I loved the singing. And I was an adequate singer, but I never really looked at musical theater as this thing that I wanted to be involved with in. Uh, or with. I didn't, like, actually get into performing musicals until my junior year of high school. Um, but I I did that, and then had a really, really good time. And then, like I said earlier, I had that, you know, ballet master who was like, hey, you, you've got the musical theater personality. Like, maybe try that. And I did, and found a home where I was just happier. And I had, a perf- I had an experience when I was uh, living in New York the first time. I was doing like a workshop performance and at the time I was still very ballet minded 
So very, very self-exacting, a little self-deprecating, and which is not all ballet dancers, but it's a very common theme. And th- one of the lead actresses went out and went on stage and like totally went up on her lyrics, flubbed her choreography, and she came off stage. And in my mind, I was like, she's going to rip herself a new one. She's going to like be so mad at herself, like all these different things. And she came off and shrugged and was like, yeah, I'll get them tomorrow. And that blew my mind. And I like, I distinctly remember like going back to my like dressing room and kind of like breaking down a little bit because I didn't know that that access to like personal grace or self-love existed. And that for me was a huge turning point because I realized I could be in an artistic atmosphere where I was exercising all of my creative potential, but still like and celebrate myself even in imperfection, which I hadn't really grasped before. So that was a huge turning point where I realized this might be home. This is healthier. This Mm -hmm. is safer. This is happier. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think was the beginning of where I started to like take both feet out of the ballet world and put more, maybe more than just one foot into Mm -hmm. the musical world because I was, I was able to dance with some of the best dancers I've ever seen who could then also sing brilliantly and then do these great comedic or dramatic performances. And I was in awe because they were such well-rounded artists. They weren't just movers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was really cool. And I, I wanted that for myself. One, because I wanted to be able to like myself regardless of how perfect, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, I was. But I also wanted to be a full well-rounded high caliber artist regardless of what a director wanted Mm -hmm. and that's that was what kind of shifted my trajectory yeah that's hard as as a performer we are definitely our hardest critics for sure and we are always in search for perfection Mm -hmm. we want to be the best on stage and having those epiphany moments of just like i don't need to be perfect i just need to be me no because theater in all its forms i don't care if it's ballet i don't care if it's I mean, I have filmed theater, like film or like stage productions. They emulate the most beautiful and sometimes most horrific parts of life. Life by its design is not perfect. And that's, I think, what makes it so beautiful in many ways, because there's lessons to be taught and learned and joy and, you know, sorrow to be experienced. So I have actually found that when I've gone and seen a show that's a little bit too perfect... I kind of get bored because Mm -hmm. it doesn't breathe. Um, And I I mean, people have different opinions on this, but I've gone and seen shows where it's, it's almost like watching a machine, Mm -hmm. which in its own right is impressive, but it doesn't seem to have heart because I don't feel like I'm watching humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And that being said, I mean, like I don't want to see a messy show that's off tune or anything like that, but like there are subtle human qualities that I like to see reflected in the characters I see on screen, on stage that endear me to the story, endear me to the characters or, um, endear themselves to me. I don't know which way, I don't know how to properly use the word (laughs) endear. Um, but it's, I, I find that enchanting in its own way, in a way that I didn't used to, because I used to be obsessed with, and I still have tendencies this way, but I used to be obsessed with perfectly executed choreography because that to me was the pinnacle of performance. And now it's kind of stale, mm. if that makes any sense. Well, my question 
I've taken a, a couple of ballet classes mm-hmm. in my life, and it when it comes to ballet, you really are in search for perfection. It to me when I see it, 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 it or in classes, you see these people who are machines. They're being told exactly what to do, where their fingers yes. need to be held, how their arm needs to be uh-huh. tilted, and so it's got to be an extremely hard balance to go from that perfection to that freeing art form. It is. And I think it's still a daily process because like there's moments, even in the show that we're doing, like I, in our opening prologue ballet, it's like a 10 minute ballet that opens the scene in Paris. Um, and I'm wearing a very not meant to be danced in military jacket. And like last night, I was kind of like pulled off my center of gravity as I was doing a turn and I didn't like fall or anything, but for me, I was like, oh my gosh, it wasn't on my leg. I'm this, I'm that. Oh my gosh, the audience is going to think. And I was like, the audience has no idea. The audience doesn't care. They saw beautiful movement. You're a soldier coming home and being welcomed by, you know, your girl that like what they're seeing is the amalgamation of choreography, music, and intention. They're seeing the moment, not necessarily the step. And I mean, you know, the flub that I did was probably not perceptible to the audience. It's me after 25 years of intense ballet training going, oh my gosh, that last millisecond I shifted weird on my arch. And it's like, they don't know, nor do they care. Um, But I think with the, you know, exacting nature of ballet, like to stick with it, you truly have to love it Mm -hmm. because you will never be perfect at it. I had an instructor when I was young that said, as a ballet dancer, if you give a perform a, a truly perfect performance, quit because you'll never do it again. Like you've you've arrived, you're done. <laughs> um, and even now, as a more well-rounded performer, when I go back and watch, you know, the great primas that are dancing right now, the ones that I'm drawn to are not the ones who are necessarily perfect technicians. Um, there's one, she is, I mean, she's pretty technically flawless, but before anything else, she is an actress, and her name is Marianela Nunez, and she's one of the greatest ballet dancers who's ever lived, but, like, I watch her, and it's funny because I don't, I find myself watching more how she is experiencing the emotion of her character or how she's constructing the world around her rather than how high her leg is, how turned out mm-hmm. she is. And granted, she has all of that facility. She has all that technique that she's, you know, no doubt worked to earn. But that's not what I watch for anymore. And one of the ballerinas that I used to love to watch, who is a technical masterpiece, is dead behind the eyes. Mm -hmm. And I almost don't care because it's machine-like. It's cold. It's beautiful in the sense that it's pristine movement. But so what? What are, you, what are you saying with it other than my knee is in my ear and I look like an alien? Like, it's, <laughs> it doesn't communicate love, loss, joy, anger, like, all of those different things. Like, the height of a leg and the height of an arch doesn't give me any information if you don't know how to employ intention mm-hmm. or leave enough of yourself as the performer on stage, um, which is what I look for now. So... I see growth in myself that way because I'm no longer looking for perfection. I'm looking for heart. I'm looking for humanity on stage, um, which is funny because it's a double-edged sword because I don't allow myself to have that on stage sometimes. <laughs> so it's it's that weird, like... Yep, yep. It's like that weird ballet trauma that's, like, vestigial and still there. But it's it's growth in the sense that I don't look for it in other people so I can slowly start to afford myself 
that kind of grace Mm -hmm. because I know that there's other people out there who are looking for my heart, my intention, and not necessarily, you know, 180 degree extension all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's, I don't know if that even, that totally went (laughs) everywhere, but we're all over the place. We are. Well, that's, yeah, artists are our own critiques. We are. And, and also Taylor is an example of ballet dancers also knowing that they look silly sometimes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there's, the, this process has been that way. The, there's so many moments, because this choreo is very, very quick. Uh, I've had to remember that people see things in pictures. Like, they remember things in pictures and not necessarily always how you get there. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying have bad transitions. That's not my goal. But there's been so many moments where in order to get to like a certain picture, I go through positions that I may not necessarily feel are quite beautiful or quite like flowy to get there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels so crunchy. Please don't look at me. And then you go back and watch it on video and you're like, oh no, that's quite lovely because it's like establishing like this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I've had to get really good at or like try to get good at as a musical theater performer is trusting the music and text and choreography to tell the story. And I think sometimes we like force so much of our intention on what we're performing that it's like, oh my gosh, this is my emotion. Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get what I'm trying to do? Instead of letting the emotional motif of the music or the script Mm -hmm. and the movement just do it for you. As long as you are there and you're willing to be that conduit of that emotion or that story, if it's a well-written piece, it's, kind of going to happen on its own um as long as you you know are open to that and hitting your marks so that's kind of the sense of control I've had to lose as a ballet dancer is just step into the work believe in what you're doing believe in these words believe in the power of the music behind it and just show up and let the story move through you instead of control your every movement your every breath your every muscle contraction And it's kind of scary because as a ballet dancer, you like to be in control. And as a theater performer, you sometimes feel like you're flying by the seat of your pants. Mm -hmm. But that is the thrilling and beautiful emotion that you share and give and take with the audience in a way that I didn't necessarily feel when I was exclusively a classical dancer. Mm -hmm. Um, The project that Taylor is referring to, he is currently in a production of An American in Paris, and I do have to apologize, I haven't seen it yet, but I am going tonight <laughs> yes. to watch all of this in action. Oh, I'm so excited, I forgot that you're coming tonight. <laughs> kind of going back from what piqued your interest about this to where you are now. As an artist, we are always in search for success. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself successful, and at what point do you consider success in theater? I do consider myself successful. Um, I came from a program... And speaking of like my BFA program, that was very much Broadway or bust. And whether that was the culture that we created as students or as a, you know, collective whole with faculty included, I don't really care to get into. But there was this, like Broadway was success, which I had to kind of like break down for myself because, you know, there's, you know, X number of theaters on what is considered the Broadway district. And... You know, at any one time, there's, like, maybe anywhere from, like, 5 to 15 ensemble tracks in that show. And then you have that for what there is for men. And if you multiply that by the times of, uh, like, times the amount of theaters that there are in the Broadway district, it is a very, very small number 
versus the amount of people who move to the major theatrical cities to work in theater. And statistically speaking, there's just not enough to go around. So if that is what people deem successful, statistically speaking, you're, you're going to be unsuccessful most of the time. For me, success has been rebranded to be able to be paid doing what I love and being able to be not only like financially fulfilled, but also like emotionally and spiritually fulfilled by what I'm doing. I don't care if that's a backwoods performance of Mamma Mia, or if it's a great regional production of American in Paris, or if it's a Broadway national tour, or if it's Broadway itself. If I get to employ my creative skill set and entertain and share joy with other people and be compensated for it, that's really awesome. Like that's, that is success for me. Another thing that I find enormously fulfilling and is part of my success is when I am not engaged in a contract or uh, on the road with a show, I also work as an educator. I work as a ballet director for a ballet school in Idaho. And I feel enormously successful being able to pass on just the wonderful techniques um, that I have learned that have been instilled within me and pass them on to another generation of performers. I think because I work primarily with training uh, ballet dancers, there's a lot of toxicity that comes in uh, with traditional classical dance practices that I never really found effective. And then I was blessed to work with other people who really allowed me the creative freedom, but also just like, emotional validation to be like, hey, this is what we just did. This is where you're on the right track. You're doing well. Now to supplement what we just did, we need to do X, Y, Z to take it to the next level. That's the way that I like to teach, letting people know that they're on the right track, letting them know that they're not far off. We just need to fix a few things or add a few things to get where we want to go instead of no, do it again. No, do it again. Why does it look like that? Do it again. Which is a lot of classical training, unfortunately, because it's steeped in that very rigorous, quote-unquote, character-building training, which is not useful. Um, and it's, in, in many ways, gratefully I didn't experience this, but in many ways it's abusive. And when you have young kids that are in developmental stages, being treated or spoken to that way really messes with their self-worth and what they believe they are capable of. So part of my success is breaking that like generational trauma chain as a ballet teacher and going in and being like, here... Ballet doesn't have to suck the soul out of you. You can still have a beautiful, professional, healthy relationship with this art form, even though it's enormously difficult. You can still love you. You can still love the art form and walk away from a rough class, knowing that you're still a great person. Ballet's still awesome. Those are two completely separate things. So yeah, I think being able to positively pass on the knowledge that I have and at the same time still be able to go out and be fulfilled and paid to make people laugh and entertain them. Like, I love to make people laugh. I like to be silly. You are very good at it. I love it. (laughs) And that's, I, I love entertaining people. Like, it's just, it's really fun. So to be able to go and do that, whether it's in front of an audience or whether it's in front of my students is what makes me successful. Now, 
you know, if the opportunity presented itself to do another Broadway tour or to go and do, you know, Broadway itself. Yes, that's another form of success, but it is no longer the only brand of success that I accept. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, looking back now, I think it's a very narrow-minded and kind of Mm -hmm. childish way to gauge success because if you just look at the numbers, it's like you have kind of damned yourself to statistical depression. I'm just like, well, if it's not there, then I never made it. And it's like, you may never make it. And it's not because you're not good. And it's not because you couldn't do it better than some of the people that are hopping show to show to show. Mm -hmm. It's just a numbers game. Yeah. And it's, there's, there's so much that is numbers, that is politics, that is social, that is, I mean, I, I know for a fact that, I mean, like even Anastasia, which we got to do together, I... I know that I was very capable of the ballet track that I booked, but I also know that the man that did it on the original tour was 6'5". I am just under 6'4". They didn't have to alter the costumes very much. I know that that went into the decision-making process. And that's part of it. I mean, I I have many, many friends who, by their talent alone, should probably be booked and blessed always on Broadway they may not fit the shoes that the current track has. Or they might not want to do it. They may not want to do it. And that's the thing is Broadway is not for everybody. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to want to do it. Um, (laughs) Let's put that out there. Taylor was staring into the mic telling you all. I am. I'm telling all of you. (laughs) It's not the only thing out there. And that was the other thing is like I worked a lot uh, pre-pandemic internationally. And I think a lot of us here in the U.S. are kind of like, I mean, Broadway's the end all be all. Mm -hmm. We've got it figured out. Oh, the rest of the world knows entertainment just as well, if not better, mm-hmm. than we do. So some of the projects that I've worked on outside of the country, in terms of scale, you know, spectacle, talent level, like, I, <laughs> there are shows like that that I will probably never touch again in terms of quality just because we don't know how to do that in the States yet. And that's fine. And then there's another thing is like, I, I will stand true to this till the day I die. The only reason I've ever booked a show is because an Aussie did not show up to the audition. <laughs> they know it's... how to perform. They're freaks. It's amazing. But, um, yeah, success, success is really whatever you want it to be. And I, I did a production with, um, an actress when I was in Alabama, when I was with the Alabama Shakespeare Festival for a, uh, contract of Sound of Music. And there was this woman who was just, like, everything she did on stage, I was like, how have you not been nominated for an Oscar? Why doesn't everybody in this world know your name? And she was just like, because I like where I live and I love the, like, life I have mm-hmm. with my family here and if I get to do two or three shows here every year, I'm happy. And I was like, you are successful. And that's the really cool thing about setting your own standards of success is a Tony or a Broadway contract or a tour. Like those are, those are very public markers of success, but it's just cool to me that there might be someone like backwoods of Oklahoma who's never really auditioned for anything that could out sing so many people on Broadway or out act all these Oscar winners and just simply doesn't because they don't want to. And it's just cool that that type of talent exists in different places and it shouldn't be invalidated just because it's not on a red carpet. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah. It's so cool. And like, cause you're from Montana. Yep. Um, I used to work for the Montana dance arts association and their arts board. And I would teach a ballet scholarship audition. And 
there was a uh, ballerina that showed up to one of these auditions for a scholarship that I was awarding. Um, her name's Margaret White. And I did not think, you know, world-class ballerina coming from the hills of Montana. But she was phenomenal. I awarded her this scholarship, which she then took to go pay towards, uh, like, a, a summer intensive with, like, the Dutch... I think it was the Royal Danish Ballet. Mm. Not Dutch. Different D. Um, but she now is a ballet dancer with the Bavarian State Ballet in Germany. And she, like, it's it's things like that where... Just because it's not visible to you, or it doesn't have an award in hand, or that it doesn't mean that that talent doesn't exist, it just may not have been seen, and it may not want to be seen, which is so cool because talent lies everywhere, um, and that in and of itself is like you. I mean, you can be successful belting your life away while doing dishes, or you can do it while you're accepting your Tony Award, like. Success is whatever you want it to be. When I talk to a chef, they have ingredients. When Mm -hmm. I talk to a sculptor, they have their chisels and their marble. When I talk to a painter, they have their canvas and their paints. Tell me about your creation process. How do you get started on a project? I... (laughs) So, I am very much like an ADHD person who, like, I will hyperfixate on something... Um, whether that's like a comp, like a concept or an idea or a phrase of movement or a melody. And that kind of becomes the seed of something that kind of like, just like roots off and branches off into like different things. Um, my creative process is a lot of trial and error and editing. If I'm creating the movement, I am not a fast choreographer. And now I don't, I don't write scripts or write music. I wish I had that skill and maybe it's one that I'll cultivate later, but like mine is mostly movement. So I have a general idea that through trial and error ends up, you know, being whatever it is at the end. And it's not a, not a clean process. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I think when we were rehearsing for this show, Larry Rabin, our director, uh, showed us like the six steps of the creative process of like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Oh, this is okay. Oh, this is, garbage. Oh, I'm garbage. Oh, wait, this might be okay. Wait, this is awesome. And that's kind of how mine works is like, I'll have an idea of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is brilliant. I'm so, so smart. This is going to be amazing. And then I start working on it and I'm like, oh, maybe it's just okay. And then I get deeper into it and I'm like, this is probably the worst work I've ever done, which then evolves into like, I'm probably the worst artist who has ever lived. Why do people hire me? And then you just kind of edit down and or, or just like try out different concepts and you're like, oh no, this might be okay. Mm-hmm. And then by the end you're like, oh my gosh, my idea was brilliant. See? And people only ever really see the end. So it's just, right, exactly. which is what I yeah. think like leads people to think that in this realm of entertainment or showbiz, whatever you want to call it, that it's very glamorous. It's people who are extremely talented, who know exactly what they want to do. They show up in the studio, they bang it out, it's done, they win an award. And it's like, blood, sweat, and tears does not even cover it. It's like, blood, sweat, tears, self-loathing, therapy. More blood, reversing, more sweat, right? more tears. And yeah. then you get to the end, and it's nice to be recognized for those things, mm-hmm. but like, it's never... They don't show you with, like, your hair sticking up at different ways in, (laughs) like, sweat-soaked sweats, staring at the mirror going, 
why did I ever think I could do this? Just questioning existence. Exactly. Um, you, you see, like, the idea and then the red carpet. And yep. it's like, oh, well, that's good for you. But um, I, I, I love the saying, like, there's no good writers, only good editors. Mm-hmm. Because that's... I mean, nobody starts with, you know, the New York Times bestseller. Nobody starts... With the Astaire Award, it always starts out as like you're walking through the grocery store and you're kind of like, "Ooh, that was kind of a fun move." Yeah, like, yeah. oh, what if I did that? And like, you're literally you're like dancing yeah. in the grocery store, and then you get in the studio, and then you're like, "I don't remember it. What was it?" And then you try to reconstruct it, and it never works. Mm-hmm. And then like you finally get there, and it works out. So it's like, it's so like the the creative process is this crazy like EKG that would concern nurses. Like it's all over the place, erratic. Um, but I think there is like one of the biggest tools that you can have going into the creative process is self-love and grace of just kind of like, it's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect now. Like I'm fine. The fact that I'm trying is enough and just a love and and a passion for what you're doing. Um, one of my favorite quotes, and this will be very, very paraphrased. It's more of an idea, but it's from, I believe it's from Martha Graham. And it's talking about the divine dissatisfaction of artists where, you know, you're, you're always chasing that perfection that we talked about earlier. You're always chasing that perfection or that like better expression of what you do. And then she finishes later in the quote, but it's not for you to judge whether or not it's good, whether or not it's bad, because it is yours. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it, and if you don't, if you don't try, if you don't execute it, if you do not express, you know, whether it's a show, a move, whatever, like, if you don't express your craft, then the world will never have it, because only you can do it the way that you would. And if you're familiar with this quote, that was an oatmeal (laughs) paraphrasing, but you get the gist. But look it up. It's Martha Graham, Divine Dissatisfaction. And it's... It's wonderful, and I love the idea of creating and not worrying about whether or not it's good. And we kind of talked about that with, like, right before we started recording, the topic of podcasts. Like, you have these extremely curated podcasts that are, like, super informative and great learning opportunities, but they kind of go stale because it's so regimented, and the ones that hook people's interests are just, like, on the fly, shooting Mm -hmm. from the hip, like, this is my day, this is what I want to talk about, just ramble, ramble, ramble. And we love it just because it's uninhibited. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with art. Like, it may get to a position where you see it on screen or on stage that is very curated. But it started because somebody was like, here's an idea. <laughs> and that's where I think the best art comes from. It's this uninhibited idea mm-hmm. of like, I'm just going to run with this. I don't really care if it's good yet. And then once you like have it out on paper or on stage or on bodies, you can kind of go, okay... That might actually be garbage. This we can get rid of. Oh, let's put more of this because mm-hmm. it's obviously working. So it gets to its final stage. But you can't do that if you don't have a first draft. And I think so many artists don't create because they have the curated final project or product in mind and are afraid to see their own rough draft because they're judging their chapter one on somebody else's like final six volumes. Mm-hmm. And that's... That six volumes doesn't exist if that person didn't, like, start to write, you know, a rough draft on a napkin, a la J.K. Rowling. So it's things like that that, like, you just, you have to have love for yourself, love for the process, and just, like, I don't care. This is, this is me expressing myself. 
And then you can edit as like you go before people consume it. I need like a little Taylor motivational speaker. <laughs> Good lord. Um, I just like to talk about things because I, I, I'm one of those people who just likes to talk. That's wonderful. <laughs> so I, 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 I really like what you said about patrons or an audience. They only see the final product. Mm-hmm. They see what the artist wants you to see. Yes. But you never or rarely get to see the grueling process, the creation process, mm-hmm. which some people have a really hard time taking that initial step. Mm-hmm. But once you do... Obviously, things change. How does your creation process adapt, change, or add while you're creating? So because the majority of my creation is, well, as a performer, is largely choreographic, I have done pieces where, as a performer, you you get to the point where you're executing the choreography, and some great choreography are like, this flows, it makes sense, I could do this with my eyes closed, it feels good, it's satisfying, it's fulfilling. And then I've done other shows where it's like, I'm doing it correctly, but it just, it's, it's crunchy. It like, it just doesn't fit on my body. It doesn't feel like the next move should be coming up because in my opinion, good choreography is kind of mo- like the, the next move is motivated by the move and momentum of before. Mm-hmm. Um, and shows that are choreographed that way, they're a joy to dance. They're a joy to watch. They're just lovely. And they move the plot right along. So if I am stuck in a place, I... I'm not above asking my dancers, what feels like it should come next? What feels good? Or what is currently not working? Because I I don't want to be that choreographer who's like, this is what the movement is, do it. And have like the dancers resent either me or the choreo, because that comes across on stage, whether or not you want it to, that feeling is just, it permeates the theater or the space or whatever. And I think it's, really cool to collaborate with other artists. So, I mean, recently I choreographed a piece for a competitive team back in Idaho and I was like stuck. Like I I felt like I was choreographing up against a brick wall because I was like, I don't know, like nothing feels good moving forward. And I, you know, I turned to one of my students and I was like, what do you want to do next? Like what, like from here, where do you feel like we should go? And she goes, I don't really know, but I don't think that's the problem. It's the move before. Mm-hmm. Like, we've kind of dead-ended ourselves. Granted, this girl is, like, 16. And I'm, you know, here in my 30s. And, like, I, I know a lot of choreographers would just be kind of like, well, what do you mean the move before is the problem? <laughs> but I was like, you might be right. And then I, like, you know, you backtrack it, you backspace it, two or three moves, and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I kind of put us in a position where we can't go without looking like a goblin. Like, it just it doesn't work. So that moment of, I think, humility (laughs) Um, and just kind of like asking other artists because like when you're choreographing on a cast, a team, whatever, it's not one artist working on bodies. It's one artist leading, you know, 14 other artists. You have other, you know, very, very willing and capable minds in the room. Now, depending on time, depending on scale of production, depending on whether or not you've worked with the group, like that can be done within reason. Like I'm not saying go to like the choreography, like this feels weird, we should change it. That's not the goal. But in my creative process, when I'm in charge of that and I have the time to do so, I'm not beyond asking for help or input either from another leader or from the people who are dancing it because you want it to feel good. You want it to be something that they can comprehend. Mm -hmm. Because it's very difficult to memorize or execute choreography where you have to think about what comes next instead of it feeling like it should come next, if yeah. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So utilizing the skills 
of others and I think giving value to the voices in the room. Mm-hmm. And that has even happened on this project. Um, DJ Gray was the choreographer and it was lovely. There were, there were several moments within like the ballet where she was just like, what is, what, what feels right here? Like, I mean, like this is, this is essentially like the rhythm it needs to have. This is the shape I'm looking for. How would you achieve that? And it was lovely because it was collaborative in the sense that she, I mean, was humble enough to say like, I'm kind of stuck. But it also showed an immense amount of trust in the other artists in the room of just like, how, help me here. Because I trust you know your craft to help this piece get where it needs to go. And that was just really, really cool. And, you know, because we were on amiable enough terms, we had a long enough production period, we could do things like that. The environment suited that ability. So it it comes with kind of going back that grace for yourself and others and that humility of finding or giving the other voices in the room access to the piece because art is in many ways collaborative. Like that's, Mm -hmm. and I think that's what's beautiful too. And it gives like in this cast, for example, like it gives you a sense of like ownership of the world and not in a way that I'd be like, well, DJ's the choreographer, but like I did this part, not necessarily that, but it's like, I am a puzzle piece that contributed to the whole of this Parisian world that we've created that moment I had a hand in, not that's mine. She couldn't do it without me. That's not it. It's, I was a part of this system. I, 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 I like, I'm, I'm a puzzle piece in this whole. And it, it, it makes the piece almost sacred in a sense, which I really, really love. Um, so yeah, ask for input, ask for help. You don't have to do art by yourself. But it also sounds like it's important to be able to listen to. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, it all goes back, I think, and artists naturally are like a very ego-ridden group, but I think a lot of success, whether it's in your relationships with other creatives, production studios, castmates, is humility. I don't have all the answers. I'm not good at every single little thing how can I help you? How can you help me? And it goes back to that puzzle analogy because like you always have those little nubs that stick out and there's like that little hole in the other piece. Like what I have, I can complement in the areas that you may fall short. Where I fall short, your piece fits. And it's beautiful and it gives you that ability to have that grace because you don't have to have all the answers, but you're not going to get them if you don't ask or if you don't have, you know, the emotional maturity to say, hey, I'm struggling or I'm confused. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates such a cool environment in the room because then it's not, I'm your boss, I'm telling you what to do. It's, I'm leading this, but I respect your talent and trust you. How do we make this work? Mm-hmm. And it's the, the, the like, environment or the temperature I would say of like the room changes it becomes home instead of the office it's I mean it's still your job but it becomes a very very amiable safe creative space because when you're in a space where someone is like 
arbitrarily calling the shots with no question, with no wiggle room, it becomes a little militant and it, it goes stale Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. So to have a living, breathing, safe room where this world is constructed is really cool. And that's, I think, where the greatest art comes from, because it's not only it's something that works for the whole, but when that type of cast or team or whatever feels as if they've been a whole, or like been a part of the creation of the whole, that is reflected on stage. You see a family presenting a story instead of 15 dancers trying to one-up one another. Just saying lines and trying to show yes. off. Yeah. And that's... Yeah, I always, I mean, I have to remind myself and the, those that I, you know, teach, if you're in a cast, you're all on the same team. No one is, you're, this is, this is not competition. You're all on the same team. The team is to get, you know, however many people in our house to believe that we are in post-World War II Paris. This is a love story. This, this is, this is the goal. We're all on this team of making this work. If we are trying to turn it into the international ballet competition on stage between each other, all of that meaning is lost. It becomes so you think you can dance, and it's great for reality TV, but it's not what people paid for tonight. And I just... That give and take between cast members, directors, choreographers, music directors, set designers, like all of this collaboration is what creates that world, and it keeps that like thread of communication tight. And believable instead of like, well, here's, you know, Eagle Elementary's <laughs> production of American in Paris, where it's a bunch of kids trying to ham it up. You know what I mean? Bring so, it on. I'd love to see that. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That would be a disaster. <laughs> um, I really like your analogy of a production, or really most art forms, being a puzzle piece mm-hmm. or, or being a puzzle. Yeah. Um, each person is their own unique shape and the entire creation process is just figuring out how things go together. Mm -hmm. And in the end you have this product, which hopefully in most cases, everybody is proud of. Mm -hmm. What happens if you get some bad criticism? How do you handle criticism from outsiders? This is, I think the fact that art is subjective is the greatest tool here. And, and I think this is something you learn the more that you audition because I have, when I was living in New York regularly or when I've sent in tapes to, you know, the same tape to several different things, I have, especially with tapes, it's wonderful because I have the exact same performance on tape. It is a copy of the file and you'll send it to different casting directors and people will call you and be like, I need to see you tomorrow. This is, you're exactly what we're looking for. And then there's people that you'll never hear back from or people that'll be kind of like, it's headed in the right direction, I guess, but we need to fix, you know, X, Y, Z. It's going to mean different things to different people. You, like we have had, um, for American in Paris, we've had people come in and be transported and just, you know, this, this transcends anything I've seen. This is amazing. And then you've had other people who in our audience have been like, well, it wasn't like when they did West Side. And it's like, yeah, it that's and you're completely <laughs> entitled to that opinion. Um, different stories, so kind of apple oranges, you know, whatever. But it's art means different things to different people, and that's not the artist's fault. 
it's like one thing. So I'm an incredibly tall dancer. Yes, I'm, I'm just tall for what I do. Um, and I have gone into many, many an audition where they're just like, we really, really like what you're bringing to the table. You're just, you're very tall. And I'm like, yeah. Um, and I don't plan on having knee reductions. And you've seen it <laughs> on my resume since day one, even though we're on round five of callbacks. So that's a you problem. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. So it's, you're, you're not going to be able to fit everybody's puzzle. And that's kind of goes back to what I said about success is your puzzle piece is your puzzle piece. You're not needed for every puzzle, but it doesn't mean you're wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just not your puzzle or it's not a puzzle that you can solve a problem in. That's not on you. It's just go find a different box, go to a different audition. Um, and it's, it's also so much easier, I think, to dismiss or at least just handle criticism from those outside of theater because I'm like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, there, you can, you, it, you're either entertained or you're not. Like, I mean, I hope you were at least entertained. But the quality of something, you don't have a great gauge for because you don't know what goes into this process. You don't know what we're doing, how it's achieved... In the same way that I wouldn't, like, go to a pilot and be kind of like, I don't know, the way that you, like, came down in altitude was a little bit, like, <laughs> the trajectory was slightly off. I'm like, I have no business doing that or going into, like, a neurology clinic and being like, I don't know, that was a weird technique. I point my toes and belt for a living. <laughs> I am qualified to comment on certain things. And I mean, I may comment on other things, but, like, the, the credibility of me in that lane is significantly reduced. So when you have critics who have never really been in your shoes or don't participate in the world very often, they're, they're more than entitled to their opinion. But it's like, okay, I mean, I'm sorry it wasn't your cup of tea. The, you know, there's another show next season. Like, maybe go see that one. Maybe it'll be your thing. I don't really care. But even within the industry, we have our likes and dislikes. Like what I, when I began this episode that we're talking on, um, there are people who love the pristine, choreographically flawless ballerinas. I find them boring. There's not a ton of heart behind it. I would much rather see somebody who is just an absolute beast of a storyteller who's also a great dancer. But I'm not looking for flawless technique if it means I'm sad, if, I, if it means I'm sacrificing the story. So if I was sitting on a casting panel and somebody came in and slayed the choreography, but they looked like they've never had an original thought in their lives, and number two standing next to them maybe dropped a piece of the choreography, but I couldn't take my eyes off of them because I was feeling what they were feeling, that person gets the job. If another casting director came in and was obsessed with clarity, they may give the job to the other person. So... Everybody has their likes and dislikes. The end. It's and th and that's what I love. That's what I love about the arts is because like, you know, in you know something that's a little bit more analytical like math. I mean, two plus two is always going to be four. The arts kind of flips that on its head because like it's it's what you like. It's what you're drawn to. If you're not drawn to me, that's not necessarily my fault. I don't know what has shaped your perception, but it's also not my responsibility to find out. Mm -hmm. So that's yours. And I think it also like takes pressure off of actors when they're auditioning for a piece. Like I said, the whole puzzle thing, but like, <laughs> I am not, for an example, I am not a rock singer. I am a golden age baritone ballet dancer. 
And in college, there was a, uh, like a rock musical that was going through a workshop thing. And we, as the BFA program, had to like audition for credit. So I like went in, dutifully bombed the audition. And one of the faculty members was like, well, when you move out to New York City and they're holding auditions for Rock of Ages, what are you going to do? And I was like, sleep in and go to Hello Dolly the next day. <laughs> like, because that's what I do. That's where I am loved. That's where I am validated. That's where my skill set fits. I, I mean, I'm not going to show up as a goldfish to climb a tree. That's not what I do. So there's just... You, you will be celebrated in the right areas by the right people who know what they're talking about. And it's kind of like that water bottle principle of like, you know, a single water bottle at the grocery store is 50 cents, but at the airport it could be $6. Mm-hmm. Go where you are most valuable. Go where people know what they're talking about when referencing your talent, your gift, whatever, and you'll be much happier. If you happen to meet somebody from the grocery store section of your life, that's on them. They may only know water <laughs> as 50 cents, and that's okay. But you're a $6 bottle of water, so go where you're needed. I can also attest to his golden boy baritone ballet dancing. He is beautiful. If you ever have the opportunity to go watch this Taylor Stanger... This is coming Stanger from the person who has flawless turnout <laughs> as not a ballet dancer. But that's very sweet of you to say. Thank you. Uh, it's true, though. All right, we're going to shake it up a little bit. Okay. What hobbies do you have? Do they complement or contradict your craft? And do you think it's important to have hobbies? Yes. Have hobbies. Have several hobbies. And have things that have... Like, have hobbies that have nothing to do with your craft. Outside the craft. Um, Yeah. Just because I always say, like... And I love theater. I love my job. I love what I'm doing. But I am a person who has theatrical experiences. I am not an actor who sometimes participates in humanity. Like, before anything, you're a person. Um, And I think people get in a lot of trouble when they are only an actor. Just because you you are the amalgamation of characters you played instead of knowing who you are and how you can bring more of your life experience and your joys, traumas, whatever, to a character. It's very difficult if you have not met yourself. And I think you can do that through hobbies or just different interests or... Yeah. Um, I am an avid photographer outside of you know theater and they do walk hand in hand because like actors are always looking for media whether it's portfolio stuff whether it's a headshot so mine kind of walk hand in hand but the majority of what I do is fashion photography so it's not necessarily right there um and I just love it and I I have incorporated like my understanding of movement and line and how that like lends itself to a successful photograph but they're not necessarily related in the sense that, like, that doesn't help me book a show. Like, they're not looking for somebody who's going to, like, do the media for the project and cover the role. I would hope. Anyway, um, so in that regard, I think it's just great to have something outside because it's something that is still artistically fulfilling but in a completely different branch. But it's, it's very important to have things that make you happy or that you can find success in outside of theater because... Even the most successful actors are not employed as actors 100% of the time. So find something else that you love to do. So for example, like for me, I like run a small photography business when I'm back in Boise or one of my other hobbies slash professions is also teaching. So I'm still finding success even if I'm not employed as an actor. 
and I, this was something that I saw the other day that was huge for me. And I, it just put into words something that I've been feeling for a while is, uh, I, I have found, I think her name's Ashley Brown, but she does like, she has like a TikTok that deals with like black women in business type thing. And she was talking about, she gave an analogy and she was like, if we went over, you know, to that lamp and we unplugged it from the wall, that outlet still has power, even though it's not being used in that moment. It's not a useless outlet. It's just not used right now. So I feel when you have hobbies or other things that you can plug into or that can be plugged into you when you're not engaged by the actor lamp, you still notice your power, your skill, your fulfillment, even if the thing that's currently plugged in is not a show or not a movie or something like that. So it's important to have all of those, you know, different hobbies, different devices that can be plugged in when you may not be feeling useful in a certain area. Like, I mean, I work all the time as an actor, which is a wonderful problem to have. But even then, it's not every day of the year. Mm -hmm. And I, like every other actor, and I shouldn't do this, and I'm getting better at not doing it, but we tend to tie our worth to our productivity within the industry. So when I'm not in a show, even if it's been two weeks after closing a great show, I go, well, maybe I'm not that good. Or maybe no one will hire me. Maybe I'm done. Oh my gosh. Maybe, maybe I was never talented to begin with. And then you sit in that downward spiral and then you don't want to audition for things because you're like, maybe I am bad, blah, 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 all that mess. But if you have other outlets or other things that can be plugged into mm-hmm. your outlet, you never really disengage from that. I am powerful. I am mm-hmm. successful. I am needed. And if you don't have those hobbies, then you just sit there without being utilized. And you're not any less powerful, but you don't necessarily feel it. And you just spiral. So it's very, very important to have things that are not dependent on your success in the industry. I could not work for years and still be successful in photography. And that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. They're completely disengaged. So that I don't have to wonder about my worth or my skill as... Taylor, regardless of whether or not I'm in a show. Um, So, yes, hobbies. Have lots of them. And if you can, make sure that they're not directly dependent on your success as a performer. Mm -hmm. Just because I think it gives you a lot of healthy outlets. Yeah. I also think you and I have the, the benefit of... Well, one of my favorite hobbies is kind of escaping... The, the the world and just getting out into the outdoors yes. and one of my favorite hobbies is just going home mm-hmm. you and I get to go home to the Rocky Mountains we do and That's just wonderful. kind of get away from the grind and the, and the city vibe and we just get to and the city the city is great professionally and when I was living and based in New York for the years that I was there I considered it an occupational obligation Like, I am here because of what I do. But the minute that I booked work and I knew I wasn't going to be in the city for, like, for example, like that Sound of Music contract that I talked about years and years ago, I booked it, I think, in August, but the contract didn't start until, like, the beginning of October. But I knew I was going to be employed on that for, like, almost four months. So I left the city. I went home to chill with my family until that contract started. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, but you could have booked something else in the interim. Yeah, I probably could have. But I was happier at home, knowing mm-hmm. that I had work that I was going to head to. Um, so the city is lovely, but I loved that it afforded me a lot of opportunities. But in any other way, for me, it was overwhelming and it wasn't worth it, just because living in the city was wildly inconvenient. 
I thought. Yeah. I was paying all this money for inconvenience. It was nice because I was close to work. Right. But even then, the majority of projects that you're going to book cast in New York City and are somewhere else. So you're paying to live in a city that doesn't give you a ton back only to leave the city unless on the small percent chance you book Broadway. Not impossible, but like it's just, it was just a numbers game that I was like, I don't really understand this. So yes, having the opportunity to go home to the Rocky Mountains and just not deal with the industry unless it's on my terms mm-hmm. is really nice. And I'm fortunate enough to be in a position in my career where I can do things on my terms now and I can say yes or no to certain things because I have the experience or the resume to back it up now. I think earlier that would have been harder because I needed to start and like get noticed, get seen and get that network going. But now it's lovely because I just, I go home, I do what I need. And if I need to be in the city, I will go to the city. If I need to be seen for a callback or a screening, I will be there. But it's for work. It's not home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any advice uh, for someone to get educated um, in your craft for newcomers? Um, do you recommend school or do you recommend just trying to get into the field? The first piece of advice I have is it's not necessarily advice, it's just kind of like factual. It's never too late to start. <laughs> One of my favorite things that I see, like, floating around social media is that post of, like, at 30, Oprah was doing this. At 40, Harrison Ford was whatever. And it has nothing to do with what they do now. And, you know, especially in performance, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm in my 30s. I can't start now. And it's like, why not? There are people who, like, didn't gain traction in their careers until their 60s. So it's never too late to start. Like, there's no rules in this industry. You may start having acted one week and get picked up by a Netflix special because you have just that something that they wanted. Awesome. There's no rules. There's people who've gone to like the Yale drama school who don't work for years and 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 and then win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. So like there's no rules as when to start and on, especially as a ballet dancer, I've worked with a bunch of women who started, they're like, yeah, I started dancing when I was three. And then the guy who's like doing all of the male principal roles in the company is like, yeah, I started when I was 19. Mm. And I'm like, you're 23. You got this far (laughs) in six years. Or no, that's not good math. Four years. Hello. Clearly went to school for music. Um, But it's, it's just insane. Um, In terms of school, do what you know that you need to do. For me, I knew because of the training that I'd gone through my whole life as a dancer that I did not necessarily need a dance degree. I got one anyway. Just I was already at university. Um, however, I knew once I wanted to switch to musical theater that if I was going to catch up to people who had been doing musical theater since I had been doing like the same age that I'd been doing ballet, that I needed intense vocal and acting training because I was not supremely gifted in either. So I needed that training. And the best way to do so in a short amount of time was a degree. Um, So for me, it worked. Now, if you're confident in your abilities and you have, you know, a track record of like, I'm doing all these shows, I keep, you know, doing shows at these theaters, they keep hiring me back for things, and you feel like you can do it without, do it without. Like, it's it's not a, a, an occupation that requires the piece of paper. So... If you're noticing success and you're growing in such a way that you feel confident approaching the industry professionally or even as a hobby, go for it. 
if you know that there's areas that you lack, I don't. I wouldn't say that you necessarily need to seek a degree, but take an acting course. They, I mean, they're they're offered in cities. They're offered on Zoom. Go take a voice lesson. It doesn't need to be something all the time, but it's going to be a case by case basis. Some of the best performers I've ever worked with picked it up on the fly, and some of the best I've done have done nothing but formal schooling. So. It depends on the individual. It just really is a unique case-by-case basis. Are there any misconceptions about your craft? Mainly the biggest one for me, I'm not in ballet, is a male ballet dancer also a ballerina? No. So, I mean, so ballerina, just because, so the word, if I'm not mistaken, is Italian. And ending in A is female. I believe in Italian, correct me if I'm wrong, whoever is listening, because <laughs> I can totally hear you, um, is I believe in Italy it would be ballerino, because it's the masculine form. However, because ballet was codified by the French and everything is now in French terms, the the term that male ballet dancers are called is danseur, but I mean... Everywhere else, it's, you know, you can say male ballet dancer, you can just say ballet dancer, but ballerina is the feminine. But, I mean, I still, I mean, I still have family members who tell their friends that their, uh, their cousin or their nephew is a ballerina. So, I, I mean, it doesn't bother me, but it, ballerina is the feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, danseur, if you're being really technical, but just male ballet dancer, ballet dancer, dancer. I, I just, I mean, it really just... Depends on how specific we're being. Um, but yeah, no, and then like other misconceptions, I think one as a whole, whether it's performance in general, whether it's musical theater, film, ballet, whatever, is that it's glamorous and that it's easy. Um, definitely not glamorous. I think the events or the openings or what you see on stage is beautiful. It's spectacle, it's shiny, it's glitzy, which is really fun to do. And it draws us all immediately when we first start. Um, but the process is not glamorous. It's frustrating. It's sweaty. It's painful. It can be demoralizing depending on what you're doing, just because like we all have like self-deprecating tendencies that we're all fighting, hopefully to get better at. Um, so yeah. And with ballet, I think, yeah, that it's, that it's easy. Like, I mean, ballet dancers are the strongest people, not only mentally, but just Physically, you're doing... Like, the type of coordination and strength is insane. And the reason... I mean, like, you know that you're watching a good ballet dancer when you notice yourself saying, well, this is, you know, easy. Because it looks easy. It looks effortless. It looks weightless. Um, Because they're doing their job Mm -hmm. in the sense that they're incredibly strong, but they're not letting it affect their... uh, you know, the carriage of their body, their face. And I, like, I remember growing up, like, one of the things that the girls would always say is just like, I mean, if ballet was easy, it'd be called football. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> pissed everybody off around us. But I, my, my rationale behind it, not that I necessarily believe that that's the case, but my rationale behind it is, is like, while they are also incredible athletes, you're allowed to grimace and grunt as much as you want getting that ball to the other side of the field. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to look like a freaking gargoyle the whole time. Whereas 
you know, you have to do multiple turns with your knee and your ear, and you look, you have to look like you are just in love at a picnic on a summer's day the whole time. And it's... And then when you're done, you have to hold it and pretend to smile. You have to hold it there. And like, and there have been many, many times that like you deliver that performance and either run off into the wings to throw up or run off into the wings and take a chug on an oxygen tank just because that veneer or that facade is so ingrained and such a part of the art form. It's beautiful. It's elegant. It's effervescent. Um, and that does not come at a physical and mental price. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think it's just, if you think it's easy, it's because we're doing our job extremely, extremely well. It's well. like what we were talking about earlier. What the audience sees is that final... It is. And it's not like tip of the iceberg thing. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. it's pretty, it's nice, white, shiny, but yeah. underneath it's just this glob of <laughs> Hard work and craziness. Yeah. Um, so what's next for the world of dance in musical theater? Uh, we talked a little bit before the interview about how uh, my familiarity in musical theater is script and dialogue, pushing a script forward, but I'm more interested in talking to a dancer mm-hmm. about how dance influences a story, and do we see that changing or adapting in the future? I think it's really cool that I mean, dance has always been so integral to musical theater, or just theater in general. Um, and it's fun because, like, I feel like it ebbs and flows. Because, like, you know, if you have, like, the golden age, like, everybody was dancing their faces off. It was, like, Agnes DeMille. It was very ballet motivated. And then, like, recently we've had things like, you know, Hamilton, where it's, like, very, you know, hip-hop commercial jazz. Like, it's it's that kind of dance that moves things forwards. And then you have, you have other shows, for example, like Dear Evan Hansen, which, like, doesn't really have technical movement but there's still a lot of creative blocking and facing and stuff that is done to the music that creates thematic energies or just like emotions on stage like I remember watching Dear Evan Hansen and somebody I remember somebody was like yeah I went to the dance call for that and I was like did they just have you do a pivot turn like what was that um but I remember going to see it and I was still confused as to why they had a dance call for it but there's not a ton of dancing in it, but there are so many moments where the ensemble will shift on a beat or an angle, and it creates just these, like, isolating or welcoming panels. It changes the entire feel of the scene or the song, and it's very minimal. And I think it's really, really cool that you can have, like, a full-out dance break that, like, suspends reality, like Newsies, where it's, like... Cirque du Soleil ballet while you're watching newsboys deliver papers or you have something as small as like a pivot on stage that can change the entire Mm -hmm. feeling so I don't really know what direction it's going in terms of style just because Broadway like fashion follows trends it gets really classical it gets really contemporary it gets really classical it gets really contemporary it gets really minimal it gets really over the top so I don't really know but I love that it hasn't gone away I think when I was out in the city the first time it was very minimal or very very commercial um and i was afraid that like the day of like the classically trained dancer was like in decline and i was like oh my gosh maybe i don't have a place in this industry but then you know two seasons later you have things like carousel which Mm -hmm. is all ballet um that come back on broadway and then it i i just love that it stays in those cyclical forms because it at least it is maintaining its stronghold in the industry. I do think it's really cool to see shows that are more choreographed outside of production numbers. Like, 
I did a production of uh, The Music Man that was directed by Stephanie Breinholt. And she directed and choreographed the whole thing. It was, it was direct, uh, choreographed by Nathan Balser, but they worked together so that every transition was choreographed, whether that was with the ensemble movement or the moving, moving of set pieces. And it was really cool because it looked like the entire show was shot on a single, like, uh, you know those, like, movies that will do, like, those really, really long single shots? Mm-hmm. The way that the stage production was staged was it was made to look like a one-take journey through the music map. Whether that was us dancing into a new scene or creatively moving into a new scene or the set doing the same with us, the show never stopped. So it was never, scene one is over, moving into two, scene three is over, moving, like... It just was the experience of the music man. And that was possible because of movement. And I think it's really cool because that almost cinemagraphic or cinematograph I don't know how you say that word. <laughs> that movie-like feel brought to the stage was possible because of creativity and movement. So I love that it's no longer just production numbers. It's like, let's have them come out and tap in feather boas, and then they'll go away, and then we'll do a scene. It can be interlaced throughout the entire world and still have this tension of believability. Um, and I love it. And that's very American in Paris, whether it was Broadway or this regional production, the whole thing is choreographed. And it doesn't detract or it doesn't feel out of place because it's been so woven into the texture of the show that it makes sense. So I love that shows are choreographed instead of shows having four or five numbers that are choreographed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm noticing that as a trend as a whole, that movement is just as integral as the vocal or acting components. And I like to see that trifecta like braided together instead of like three distinct lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's next for you personally? What are you looking forward to in the future? I'm just in the process of auditioning for like the next thing, like every other actor. And like, and that's the scariest question. It's like, what's next? What's next? I have no idea. Um, I go back to Boise and I do a little bit of travel. I get to see my partner and my cat. Um, but yeah, just auditioning for a bunch of things, which is, I haven't done in a while just because I've jumped from show to show to show with similar director choreographer teams. So to be able to get a bunch of new material and like spew it out very quickly and like play with that is actually, it's been a long time since I've had like a time where I've had to really, really audition back to back. So I'm actually kind of excited because I haven't done it for a long time. And I kind of miss discovering new material that isn't tracked for me or that hasn't been fed to me like, hey, say this or do this kind of in this general way. I get a cold script and a song and like, make us like you so we hire you it's terrifying but I'm actually excited to flex that muscle again because I feel like I am making creative choices again even though it's it's not on a contract it's fun to be on contract it's fun to tell those stories every night but it's also really fun to jump back into just showing why my interpretation is different or why you might want to work with me in the future Mm -hmm. so I'm excited for it terrified but excited awesome and you can see Taylor right now and an American in Paris at the Phoenix Theater. And I'm also interested, is there anywhere that we can see some of your photography? Yeah, bytaylorjames.com is my uh, photography website. It's newly up and running and it's pretty and I like it. Um, so yeah, check that out.
Wonderful. I can't thank you enough for joining me and piquing my interest about your craft. And thank you to all my peekers out there. Please let me know if there are any special or unique artists or art forms that you think I should explore. Remember, creativity comes from the heart. Push yourselves. Be kind to each other. I'm Scoob Decker, and thank you for helping me pique my interest. Thank you.